So in general, the micronutrients, you know, they play really important functions, you know, on the regulatory side, structural side, think of, you know, calcium, phosphorus, and bone development, um, physiological uh, processes, and regulatory um, and enzymatic functions. So because those micronutrients are involved in so many different metabolic processes, if you don't have enough of one of them, then the animal's health could decline. Um, and it might not be something that you see, you know, immediately, it might be mm -hmm. subclinical. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. 84 million times a day, pets eat meals with ingredients from Trow Nutrition. We bring together the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending to unleash possibilities for pet food brands. Premixes are just the start. Turn to Trow for higher inclusion ingredients too, like proteins and carbohydrates, and highly sensitive ingredients like probiotics. With our palatants and base blends, you can feel confident about what comes in our bags and goes in yours. Learn more at TrowNutritionPets.com. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where we seek to discuss current research and how it may apply to innovation in the pet food industry. I'm your host, Julia Pazali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Taylor Hansen about the topic of micronutrient nutrition and supplementation pet foods. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. We're glad to have you here today. Now, before we talk about micronutrient supplementation and nutrition for dog and cats, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you end up in your current position today? Yeah, so I went uh, to undergrad at the University of Florida. I had the ability to do math and science well, so I thought I'd pursue a career in engineering and realized I really didn't like that. Um, so I switched and decided to go just for a math degree and started taking animal science classes uh, for fun. I had rode horses as a kid, had the uh, opportunity to work in a barn, and I wanted to learn more about equine nutrition. So I took an equine nutrition class as an elective and just kind of kept hanging around the animal science department uh, double majored uh, and uh, got my degree in animal science and math. Went on to the University of Kentucky for a master's and then back to the University of Florida for my PhD. And during those times, I worked on mathematical modeling and equine nutrition. So I was able to kind of pair both my interest in nutrition and science along with math skills. After that, I did a postdoc at Cornell University working on the ruminant farm systems model. It's a dairy simulation model to help producers uh, make 
large-scale decisions about their dairy system. So whether that's the animal, the crop management system, manure management, we worked on a large, diverse team with industry collaborators in the USDA. And I really love that collaborative approach, which is how I wound up at Trow Nutrition, uh, going back to my roots in nutrition and also getting to work in the pet food industry, which is very similar to equine because we're thinking about pets and animals um, and the pet parents' interactions. So thinking about the health and longevity of those animals more so than a production setting. That's awesome and very impressive background. I like the mathematical modeling aspect of it. And I think in the pet food industry, we're going to be using that a lot in the upcoming years with maybe less reduction of use of animals in research and so on. Yeah, it's a great tool um, in understanding how systems and nutrition work together. The hard part about it is having enough underlying data to do it well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For dogs and cats, we have lack of data in many aspects, but hopefully with the years, we can improve on that and have more of those models working uh, more efficiently uh, on a applicable way in the industry. So to start a little bit on micronutrients, very broad question. When you think about micronutrients, what nutrients specifically are we talking about and uh, why they're called that specific way? Yeah. So the micronutrients, there's 23 to 25, depending on if you're looking at dog or cat requirements. And they're all nutrients that are needed in micro or small levels um, in the pet's diet. So we think about protein or amino acids, we think about fat, those are typically, you know, listed on a percentage basis that are needed in the diets. And then you get into the micronutrients. Some of them are still on a percentage basis, like calcium and phosphorus. So some of your large um, macro minerals, and then you get down to your trace minerals and your vitamin supplementation. And those are usually on a parts per million or even a parts per billion basis. So they're micro in the sense of it's a really small, um, supplementation. The animal only needs a small quantity, but the reason the animal needs a small quantity is because they're very active molecules um, and they have a lot of function. So it's a very regulated uptake from the digestive system and then used by the animal. So your micronutrients are going to include your trace metals, your macro minerals, and along with your vitamins. Yeah, and it's not because they're including in small amounts that they're not essential or not necessary. They Absolutely. have major roles, right? Yes, yeah, they have major roles. So we like to talk about them as being small, small but mighty. They have a huge effect on the animal's uh, health and um, physiological processes. Yeah, and because they're needed in small amounts, can uh, we get all of them from ingredients uh, that are used in the pet food industry? Um, what is the variability between maybe animal-based uh, or plant-based uh, when providing those my, uh, those minerals and vitamins? So you do have, you know, natural occurring sources of vitamins and trace minerals and the typical ingredients, you know, uh, meats and fruits and vegetables all have micronutrients. The problem when it comes to pet food is a lot of the processing methods uh, destroy a lot of those vitamins. Um, you know, thinking about extrusion, um, that's high uh heat pressure in the processing and those vitamins can get degraded and you might still have some left over but then you start thinking about the shelf life of pet food and time degrades those vitamins as well so that's why we typically are supplementing them in pet diets to make sure that they're there for the animal all the way to the end of shelf life yeah very important aspect because we formulate and it's going to stay there for 
12 months, even more sometimes. So we need to formulate thinking about the end of the shelf life or yes. not exactly how it looks the formulation today. And yeah. Kenny also destroys a lot of vitamins or thiamine is yep. like up to 90% or so. So important to consider that inclusion above uh, what is provided by the ingredients for sure. Um, and we talk a little bit about animal-based and plant-based. Uh, how about sources of minerals and vitamin, mostly minerals when you are thinking about supplementation? What is the difference between organic, organic, and how they may play a role uh, on providing those nutrients and their bioavailability? Yeah, so when we talk about um, inorganic and organic sources of trace minerals, typically we're talking about you know supplemental uh, trace minerals. So uh, inorganics are going to be your sulfates, your carbonates. So these are mined from the earth and then they can be further processed to make like a sulfate. Um, those are kind of the old industry standards of mineral supplementation. They've been around for years and years and years. Uh, they can be pretty successful. Um, the thing with sulfates is they can be also very reactive. So they can be reactive in the pet food. They can also be reactive in the digestive tract because it's called an ionic bond. So they are, the sulfate and the trace mineral are very loosely linked together. And so that allows that trace mineral to have other interactions in food or in the digestive tract. When we talk about an organic trace mineral, uh, typically we're thinking about, you know, trace minerals that have some type of complex or chelate to a carbon containing compound. And that actually protects that trace mineral from some of the negative interactions in food or in the digestive tract. And so those organic trace minerals kind of protect that uh, trace mineral and allows it to get to the right place in the digestive tract to get absorbed. Yeah, and it may even have an uh, impact on how um the pet food looks like. No copper sulfate may give some of those blemishes or black spots on camp pet food that may be perceived as something bad by the pet owners, even though it's not bad, but it have an effect on consumer behavior and are they going to buy this product again? So have an impact not only on the animal, but food science and how they're going to interact with all those other nutrients on, a, uh, on, the, on the matrix of the pet food. Uh, we talk a little bit about the shelf life and we know that vitamins, they are going to have, they're going to decrease over time. Um, we think about shelf life. How about minerals? Are they more stable on shelf life? Should uh, petfo companies be worried about losing some of those over time or and during processing or there's more concern with vitamins? Yeah, so for the trace minerals in general and even the macro minerals, they have uh, much less degradation during, you know, a shelf life. Um, there are some chemical changes that can occur to these minerals that make them less available to the animal. So they wouldn't be as digestible. So you do have to watch out for some of the reactions that occur during processing to make sure that that trace mineral or macro mineral is still bioavailable for the animal. Yeah, we think, as again, again, the pet food matrix is very complex. There's so many ingredients providing all those nutrients that can interact in a different way. And some ingredients are already come processed and they're going to be processed again. And so a lot of heat and pressure and moisture that are interacting, they're going to for sure have an effect on how those nutrients are going to interact and affect their overall digestibility and also bioavailability. Uh, so when you think about 
providing those minerals. We usually, pet food companies in the U.S., they must follow the recommendations, the nutritional recommendations set by AFCO. We have there a minimum of the minerals, the trace minerals and the macro minerals as well. And we do have a ratio for calcium and phosphorus. But for the other minerals, we do not have a ratio that petrol companies must follow uh, in a commercial setting. What is the importance of balancing the other minerals beyond calcium and phosphorus? And what are the implications of, of not balancing them properly and just simply meeting those requirements or not even requirements, recommendations, and well, maybe much higher than the recommended amount by AFCO, so how that can impact uh, uh, availability of the other mineral. Yeah, so I think the first thing to remember, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is with the AFCO recommendations is their minimum requirements, right? And so that might not be the optimal level to include in a diet for animal health. So with that knowledge, when we think about mineral supplementation, it's also important to remember that most of the minerals are linked in some way to the other ones. And that's because a lot of the trace metal absorption um, transporters, they are not specific to a specific trace metal. So if you have upregulation of trace metal transporters because the diet's deficient in one of them or the animal's not getting enough of one of the trace minerals, it's going to upregulate those transporters. When that happens, then you're going to get an influx of all the other trace minerals because they can also go through those transporters. So an example of this would be in a case where there's heavy metals in a diet. If you have very low concentrations of the trace minerals that animals need, it's going to upregulate those transporters. And then when that happens, you could actually get the animal absorbing those trace met um, heavy metals. And, you know, we watch out on pet food. You know, we do our quality checks to make sure that they aren't any heavy metals, but we always have that animal physiological, you know, regulation to, you know, assist with that. And so when we unbalance a pet food, when we start over supplementing one area or under supplementing another, then we get, you know, that regulation is going to get out of balance. And now we're asking the pet um, and their digestive system to work in a way that's not really how they developed and evolved to take care of their micronutrient needs. Yeah, and as even may change during life stage and breeds, we know large breed puppies, they're not going to have the same ability to regulate calcium uptake, for example. They're going to be more successful to skeletal problems if you over-supplement calcium. So that's uh, important to consider as well, different species, life stages, how this all may interfere. I'm not going to go into uh, pathological conditions, but those are also going to affect, for sure, the availability of those minerals and how they're going to influence. Yeah. Um, yeah, so no. anything with mineral nutrition, it's all dynamic, right? It depends on what the animal needs, what their, you know, nutrient needs are, because as you just said, they change over their lifespan. It depends on the environment they're in. It depends on their health status. So that's going to be one part of it. Then you have what's in the diet, because some parts of the diet are going to make those trace minerals less um digestible. Um, they can complex with things in the diet, make them unavailable to the animal, and then you have that animal's needs. So it's a really complex system when you start thinking about all mm -hmm. the interactions. And, you know, back to your point about micronutrient supplementation and trace mineral supplementation, it does have to be in a balance and you have to account for a 
variety of things to have that precision nutrition. Yeah. Is there any ratio beyond calcium phosphorus that you specifically look into or uh, is recommended a pepper company is looking to? Yeah. So for that, you know, we're kind of stuck on what we have available for pets and what's been done in pets. And a lot of the trace mineral research um, with pets and looking at requirements, it's a little bit older than what we're used to. So, you know, you're looking at deficient or not deficient. It, mm-hmm. And so it's hard to really say, okay, this is the optimal level. You can start looking into other animal species and livestock and say, okay, this is what they're doing. This is the success they have with, you know, looking at the ratio of copper and zinc and iron. Um, but you also have to keep in mind that they're looking at herbivores versus looking at, you know, omnivores or carnivores in the pet food space. Yeah, I know you touched on a very important point that we lack empirical determination of requirements for minerals and vitamins. As you said, you have one study that shows, oh, it's not efficient, so you could provide this amount, but what is the optimal amount? And that's going to change as well based what outcome are you looking into. Maybe you're just looking into status of the mineral in the blood, but how if you want to... optimize skin and cold health or immune system. So this is going to vary a lot. And I think that's a challenge that we have in the pet food industry, conducting those studies. Who are going to fund them? Uh, how can we get the support to do those studies? And uh, at the end of the day, it's going to benefit the entire industry. If you know or have a better idea about optimal levels of zinc, for example, to support immune function or uh, skin and cold health, we have a brief idea, but not in depth. And I think we all could benefit about more information about requirements of minerals and also vitamins for dogs and cats. Uh, one important point as well is because of those relationship between minerals and how dynamic it is, uh, over supplementation can be a problem. Um, so when you think about including a premix of uh, vitamins and minerals, I think my first question is, uh, what do we look into? Should we look into your formulation to see how much minerals being provided already and consider those in our premix for minerals or how do we start with including a premix in a pet food uh, formulation or diet? Yeah. So including a premix, which is a way of adding your vitamins and trace minerals into the diet um, in a, you know, concentrated way as a single ingredient, um, it is important to consider what your goals are, right? So, depending on the shelf life of the product, what type of processing the product's going through, that's really going to start that conversation of, okay, this is what you're going to need in your premix to deliver your nutrients. Then you also got to consider your ingredients that you're using besides the premix. So obviously meats and um, other ingredients are going to have some micronutrients and well. The problem with that is you have a lot of variability in those micronutrients, depending on what supply you're getting, how consistent that supply is, and then also, you know, how bioavailable it is. So they've done studies and they've looked at, you know, the bioavailability of minerals and, you know, different meat meals. And sometimes they're available and sometimes they're not available to the animals. So you do need to have an understanding of what's being supplied by those other ingredients, but then you got to think about how do you create a premix that can complement that? Because sometimes you need to say, okay, yes, there might be, you know, 
copper from pork meal on an analytical assay, but is that actually available to the animal or should I supplement, you know, some copper in that diet um, to make sure that it's available for my animal? Yeah, and I think the variability aspect is very important in the pet food industry uh, and optimal nutrition may be a challenge. And as you said, we have that ingredient already comes with some variability in those minerals and vitamins and we had the processing, which already going to change again the bioavailability. So it's very important to consider all those aspects, not only the concentration of nutrients, but are they available where they're coming from and can companies, they measure every single time the concentration of vitamins and minerals, probably not in every single batch is of the, each ingredient that is coming into. So that's very important to consider as well is optimal level may be challenge to reach for every mineral and vitamin first because you don't know the optimal level and second because of this variability that we have uh, in the industry as well so those premix are very important always kind of scares me a little bit when i see some of the diets with no premix inclusion sometimes is and they stay there and also with this new pet food format we have they may be oxidation maybe some changes that happen during also storage in the fridge, in the freezer, in vitamins and minerals as well. Do you have any thoughts on that, on this uh, new, I'd say, pet food uh, applications or or formats and minerals and vitamins uh, inclusion on those formulas? Yeah, so I think, you know, kind of as we were just talking about, it really requires you to do your due diligence and look at those formulas to make sure that those levels that the pet needs are in there. And as we just talked about the variability, you have variability not only in the ingredients, but also in your, you know, vitamin and mineral testing. So it is yeah. taking a little bit of a less, pre- I don't want to say less precise, that's not the right term, um, but it's really requiring you to dig down deep into the types of ingredients you're using. And that's why a lot of companies you know, do add a premix just to make sure that they're at least meeting minimum requirements, right? They might not be at the optimal level, but they're at least on the minimum requirements to make sure the pet has what it needs. Yeah. And the premix, we have the vitamin premix and the mineral premix, and we can have one in both. What is the advantages or the pros and cons of having them together, separate, or overall inclusion then in the diet? Yeah. So... Typically, you know, we try to separate a premix to having a vitamin premix um, and a trace mineral premix. And part of this is because those vitamins, they like to oxidize. Um, they, they lose some of their shelf life just in the premix. So yeah. by keeping the trace minerals separate, trace minerals are great at oxidizing vitamins. So if you separate the vitamin and trace mineral premix, that gives you a longer shelf life on your premix. Um So that's one of the reasons to do a separate vitamin and trace mineral is an increase in shelf life. Another reason is a typical vitamin premix uses like an organic or a soft carrier that helps distribute those vitamins in the pet food. Um, And those soft carriers, you know, aren't necessary when we're talking about a trace mineral premix. We can use, you know, a diluent like calcium carbonate or potassium chloride in those, um, and then it can spread out those trace minerals just by them being similar particle size. So there's a little bit of a art and science when it comes to making a premix and getting those right um, ratios of vitamins to the soft carrier. 
um, and you get more uh, tailored approach when you have them separated. Now, the benefit of doing a you know vitamin trace mineral premix and putting it all together is that's you know an ease of use kind of thing. So instead of having to add two micro ingredients, you're adding one. So both of them have uh, benefits to a pet food company, and it's just thinking about what is the need of that pet food company and their manufacturing system. Yeah. And you mentioned that minerals, they can oxidize vitamins. Can they affect other nutrients, fatty acids, or in the diet that we should pay attention as well? Yes. So uh, trace minerals, great oxidizers. Um, one of the things <laughs> that we have to watch out for is making a premix. Um, if we take a trace mineral like copper, copper um, is involved in a lot of redox uh, reactions. And so if you put too much copper in a premix and then you add something like choline chloride, which is very hydroscopic, it's going to uh, take the moisture from the environment and put that in the premix. So now you kind of get a wet, clumpy premix. Now you got copper, which is an oxidizer. Add some nice fatty acids like flaxseed meal or fish oil or something like that, and you can actually get a little smoldering fire out of that. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to think about when it comes to oxidation from trace minerals um, from a you know nutrient place, but also from a safety source. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and very important to consider. And so minerals can affect other nutrients. And what other maybe other dietary factors that pet food companies they should consider when um, thinking about bioavailability of minerals? Maybe some other nutrients can affect them. So what is the other scenario that can affect the bioavailability of them? Just in general, they oxidize the fatty acids. So any of your fat sources. Their effect on amino acids is sometimes it, it could be there, but it's really hard to have. It hasn't really been shown in a like definitive pet food study. Um, and then also your fat soluble vitamins, your vitamin A, D and E um, are all oxidized by the trace minerals. Uh, we talk a little bit about shelf life, that the minerals are more stable than the vitamins uh, and how we can include them in different premix in the diet. Uh, if you only think about the minerals or, in the case, vitamins that are coming from the other ingredients, do they have a lower shelf life probably compared to if you include a premix or how that can help overall shelf life? Yeah. So the vitamins that are manufactured for pet food and the um, food industry and also in the feed industry, they go through uh, some manufacturing steps that helps preserve their shelf life. And so that might be some sort of uh, coating um, that keeps those uh, B vitamins a little bit more stable than if it was just a, a chemical addition, that coating helps preserve their shelf life. Um, with the fat soluble vitamins, there's some processing methods to you know keep it in a fat coating. So that helps with the stability of you know vitamin A, um, wherein you think about the other ingredients that don't have, that are, you know, your larger inclusion, meat, vegetables, um, plant sources, those kinds of things, those vitamins are in there, but they don't have those specialized coatings or manufacturing steps. And so they're really much more at risk for some type of, you know, oxidation step or something um, during the shelf life that makes them degrade at a higher um, rate than something that was manufactured specifically for pet food. Okay. 
and a little bit on back on the balance and on balance of uh, vitamin and minerals. What are, if you have an idea, one of the most common imbalance of vitamins and minerals in form, some formulas we see sometimes some pet foods that are they may be unbalanced because they are not paying attention at which specific nutrients. So let's say what is the most common probably unbalanced mineral or vitamin that can happen in some formulas? I really like to think that, you know, the pet food industry in general is trying to balance it and thinking about the total diet. So I can't really pinpoint a like specific one. Um, there are a couple that, you know, <clears throat> are tricky to take, you know, account for, okay, all of this, you know, let's say you're using liver in a pet food formula and now you're getting a lot of, um, vitamin D and copper in it. And so now you're trying to think of, okay, what's the right supplementation to use? So I'm not over, you know, vitamin D maximums, um, in pet food. So in, um, you know, dog food for instance, but in general, I like to think that everyone's trying to watch out for those kind of, you know, imbalances. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the pet food industry is always, doing a great job or trying to making sure it's balanced and not only complete, but there's always new people joining the industry and trying to start new things. So I think it's important for them to realize the term balance and is not only meeting those minimal recommendations by APCO, but looking into a formula as a whole and how all those interactions, they're going to affect animal health, which is a major and final outcome that we're looking into when you think about uh, formulation for dogs and cats. Yeah. And so I think that's knowing your nutrition side of it. So if you're a little <laughs> high on, you know, a B vitamin, like, you know, okay, how high is too high? So if you're looking at supplementation and you're, you know, five times the amount of riboflavin or something like that, you know, you might be in a safe spot. But if you start looking at a diet and it's 100 or 500 X that would it should be then, you know, it's time to look at your formula and say, hey, should I, you know, make some adjustments here? Because, yeah, it might be safe from the standpoint it's a water-soluble vitamin, but is it really safe when you think about the animal, you know, if they have to digest it and if they wind up absorbing an excess amount, you know, that puts a lot of work on their physiological, you know, homeostatic regulations. It's got to go through kidneys. It's got to be excreted in urine. And so that's where kind of that basic nutritional understanding of, you know, let's not over-supplement to the point that we're putting stress on the animal. Yeah, and also as uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, they many of those uh, micronutrients they work as a cofactor in many enzymes, or so they play major roles in protein, energy, metabolism, also DNA and cell signaling. And one I think one that I like to emphasize is folic acid. Sometimes we over supplement, we start over supplementing the human industry, and now we are on the other side thinking, okay, we are probably over-supplementing. How about pet and dog, dog and cat diets and pet food? Are we also over-supplementing maybe folic acid or some of those nutrients that we don't see sometimes that uh, effect right away on the animal of over-supplementation, but how about in five years, 10 years? And it's really for sure hard to see those effects, but I think it's important to think on the long-term and how small chronic doses, they have an effect on the overall health in years as we're targeting longevity and health of those animals. Yeah. And so then that gets into, okay, how available is that, you know, folic acid or B12 from a diet, you know, mm -hmm. think about human supplements and, 
you know, the B12 they give you, um, the recommended dose from a doctor for B12 is going to be much higher than what is required by a person because the supplemental sources of B12 aren't that available. So, you know, it might show up high on a, you know, concentration test perspective, a lab test, um, analytical test, but at the same time, it then goes back to, okay, how actual available is that um, ingredient or that supplemental source or even what's in those uh, other ingredients after it goes through processing. Yeah. And as you said, having a knowledge of nutrition, uh, your ingredients as well, your sources is very important. Those concentrations are just static numbers. They don't show how they're going to be utilized or uh, modified by the animal and processing conditions as well. Yeah. And, you know, so also to that point, you know, it's the nutrition side of it. And then there's a food science side of it. So what happens during processing and, you know, those kinds of things, which is not my area of expertise, but it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think pet food industry is fascinating. You have the nutritionists, you have the food scientists, engineering, and uh, collaboration between different areas to to make sure the animal is getting all those nutrients in the right amounts and uh, for a long period of time as well. Because complete, feeding those complete and balanced diets is for sure a challenge. Having everything in one bite that provides them all the nutrients that they need. I'm going to go back a little bit on the premix because I'm interested in that point. Uh, you mentioned that there are carriers that are going to basically important to have a homogeneous mixture. Is there any important thing about carriers that carriers that we should know? What is a good carrier or is not a good carrier? Is that an area of interest in the pet food industry? Yeah, so these um, carriers, the way to kind of think about it is they help distribute the micronutrients especially the vitamins um, throughout the premix and then eventually throughout the pet food. And when you're looking for a carrier for pet food, you want to find something that uh, has some physical properties that work well with the B vitamins. The B vitamins are like very small powders, um, can be very uh, electrostatic. So you have to find something that works well with them. So some of the standards that we have in the industry, um, the gold standard is rice hulls. So rice hulls have little this like little waffle structure on them and those um, tiny B vitamins just kind of sit in the middle of that uh, waffle structure. And so that really helps distribute the B vitamins um, through the food. Now with pet food, a lot of marketing claims are now, uh, you know, grain free. So what can we use in pet food that is a grain free um, thing that still has those physical properties that help carry the vitamins through the pet food? And so another option would be pea fiber. Um, So it's the hull of the pea. um, And that kind of has a Velcro like texture that again can help distribute. And lastly, Another one would be miscanthus grass. So again, we go from, okay, it needs to be grain-free. It needs to be legume-free. So the other option is miscanthus grass. And that is a product um, from kind of started out uh, for, I believe, energy. Um, Miscanthus grass is a large, uh, tall grass um, that they harvest for biofuel. And then they get the... um, Miscanthus grass is part of the stem and leaf that can be chopped up into a small piece that can be used as a carrier in pet food. So those are kind of the three typical options, but you can look into a variety of other things um, 
to be used in pet food. Yeah, miscanthus grass is also being utilized as a fiber sources, replacement of cellulose and yeah. health claims that the companies they want to bring in the links. Yeah. And so the thing to remember with like a carrier and premix in general, it's such a small inclusion. We're talking like 0.5% of the diet or less. So using miscanthus grass as a fiber source, you know, you're, you're not going to get much of it coming from your premix. If you're really looking to mm-hmm. modify your fiber um, composition, then you're going to be adding miscanthus grass, you know, in addition to your premix because it needs to be a higher inclusion typically. Yeah, I think you brought an important point too. We add those vitamins and mineral premixes, very small amounts, and also important to have a carrier. Sometimes it's very hard to add single vitamins and make sure they're homogenous in the mixture and we are in every single bite, every single kibble, we are getting each specific amount of uh, minerals and vitamins as well that uh, we are intended to, to provide in the diet. I think to finish our conversation for today, and I hope you join us again in another podcast so we can talk maybe a little bit more about the uh, metabolic effects of those micronutrients, which are very important. Uh, just wanted to maybe emphasize how important they are uh, for general metabolism. If you want to just touch the point, sometimes we think maybe all uh, oh, my cat or dog or a specific uh, animal or population, they may, may be deficient in one amino acid, but maybe you're providing that amino acid in the minimal amount, but we're not providing the vitamins. So maybe there's a problem with the supplementation. We don't have the premix or you're maybe relying on simply those vitamins from ingredients. And over time, they decrease. And then we may have an overall effect on the metabolism of the animal because they cannot function properly because of this lack of maybe vitamins or specific minerals or work as a cofactor. So maybe to finish, do you want to emphasize how the importance of them in the metabolism, how they are very key aspects to maintain health and well-being of dogs and cats. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, the micronutrients, you know, they play really important functions, you know, on the regulatory side, structural side, think of, you know, calcium, phosphorus and bone development, um, physiological uh, processes and regulatory um, and enzymatic functions. So, because those micronutrients are involved in so many different metabolic processes, if you don't have enough of one of them, then the animal's health could decline. Um, And it might not be something that you see, you know, immediately, it might be Mm -hmm. subclinical. um, But then you'll start to see, you know, if you have uh, breeding animals, breeding dogs, um, if they don't have the right muck, micronutrients in their diets, and then you're going to start to see problems with their reproductive function. So typically the way that an animal is going to use those micronutrients is first going to be for that animal's maintenance. So just, you know, staying alive, um, then it will, you know, prioritize the growth. So if it's a young growing animal, it'll start putting the micronutrients it has left in the, you know, towards growth. And then it'll go to, you know, from growth, it goes into, you know, the next generation of animals. Um, so keeping, if it's, you know, a lactating animal, you know, if there's leftover calcium phosphorus, it'll go into milk. And then lastly, it's on the reproductive side. And so if an animal's not getting enough of the micronutrients, they're going to start seeing issues with reproductive functions. Um, and then the more and more uh, deficient an animal is, it kind of goes in reverse. So it starts with, you start to see problems in reproduction, then in, you know, 
um, then you start to see the animals not growing correctly. And then lastly, if you get to the point where the animal doesn't have enough for maintenance, that's really where you'll start to see the clinical effects of um, not having enough micronutrients in a diet. Yeah. And maybe in some specific circumstances or life situations that they undergo stress, they may also need more of some specific minerals and uh, to help them overcome those specific challenges. So thank you very much, Taylor, for joining us today. I really enjoyed talking with you about uh, micronutrients, and I hope you join again to talk more about vitamins specifically or some specific ones or ideal inclusion of premix. Uh, but before we end this podcast, I'd like to ask you two last questions. The first, the first one is, um, you probably are around a lot of successful people, and you are one of those. And what is a common trait that you have observed in successful people uh, around you or in this industry or maybe not even the pet food industry, but in your life generally? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, the people I look up to, you know, as being successful is they're always continuing that hard work. They face challenges with grit and determination, um, and they're able to overcome obstacles through, you know, that grit, the, you know, grind to get something done, um, leveraging the skills that they have to use those in a way that are, you know, helpful for them to meet their end goals. Yeah, no, great point. And the last one is you move from the, you started as engineering and then you go to the equine and out in the pet industry. I hope you enjoyed this industry. And what do you like the most about being in the pet food industry? Oh, I, so everyone said uh, when I started in the pet food industry is once you uh, once you're in the pet food industry, you don't leave. And I think they're absolutely right. It's a great community. Um, I love being around uh, industry that is animal focused. Um, and I love being around pets because we're talking about the health and well-being of animals. So it's a really nice way to think about how do I help that animal's longevity and the health um, through nutrition. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thank you very much, Taylor. I hope you join us again uh, very soon. And thank you for our audience as well for listening. Yeah, thank you for having me.